Okay, last time we talked a little bit about mysticism, and I did want to kick off today's conversation by trying to emphasize a point that I think we could have been a little bit more clear on. When we talk about mysticism, uh, and we, we said a few words about the kind of discipline that goes in with that, the kind of uh, spiritual practices that can go in with that. That wasn't the bulk of our conversation, but we mentioned those things. And so you might, even just with the word mysticism, but you might imagine um, some some monk or some medieval saint having this profound religious experience, um, this visionary experience of God, and it's this uh, this vision that changes their lives forever, and then they write about it and people read about it for the next thousand years. Uh, so you might be imagining mysticism as being that type of experience. And I did want to make sure that we were clear that what we are really more interested in is um, is not that experience. That experience is like at the top of the pyramid. But as you as you trickle down, you get into your moments of everyday ordinary life. And even in those moments, you have um, you have that mystical outlook of of wonder and of humility <coughs> and of uh, of of uh, just sort of revelation, but not revelation in the profound like visionary experience where you fell on the floor and you were having seizures and and uh, and then you had like this uh, this vision of Christ or God or Mary or whatever it may be. Um, but you have this revelation in the sense of, um, of the goodness of the Lord is present with me in this moment right here. And uh, so again, I wanted to make that point kind of clearly. And that's not only true of when we use this word mysticism in general, but we have that same sort of thing with prayer. We also mentioned, I think we mentioned in our last talk, the idea of praying continually. So you have this one moment where, where that's your time of prayer, and you you shut your eyes, you bow your head, uh, maybe before you eat a meal or something like that, and like this is your moment of prayer. And we'll say maybe that praying before the meal, maybe that's not the peak of the pyramid, but you, but you can imagine some type of prayer experience that you would consider to be like the ultimate of what prayer can be. And then you have these other, um, your meal prayer is a little bit lower than that. And you might have some other moment in the day that kind of like feels like a prayer, but we're interested also in the like the very bottom of that pyramid, um, which is which is the prayer that's present in your very normal life, um, sacred experience. You have that same thing, like what is sacred? And sacred, of course, is like we live in a society that t- tries to reject the idea of sacred altogether. But if you can, if you can just kind of like suspend that for a moment and imagine like, okay, what would something sacred be? Then maybe, um, maybe you imagine a sacred day, a holiday that's different from all other days and, and maybe some kind of, uh, ritual act that you participate in on that sacred day. I mean, something, something sacred that's, well, you go to a, uh, Christmas Eve service or something like that. Like maybe that's your most sacred, um, church experience that's your most sacred experience of of the whole year and maybe for you that's at the top of the pyramid of what sacred can mean um the for uh, for others the that peak goes up much much higher um but uh but what we'll imagine some some sacred experience that's really important and then there are lesser sacred experiences like just a, an ordinary sunday regular old day where you go to church um that day is is sacred 
in in relation to the other days of the week. It's not as sacred as the Christmas Eve service, but it's uh, it's still kind of high up on the pyramid. You have other sacred moments during your week, um, during your day, but like ultimately at the bottom of that pyramid, you have uh, just these very mundane moments of life that you still engage in in the sacredness of life, the sacredness of creation, uh, the world around you. Um, and, and so in all these things, in, in mysticism, in prayer, in sacredness, um, in worship, which I didn't break down for us just yet, but in worship you have that same thing. Like, yes, there are these ultimate peak experiences, um, and having those things is important, and it does shape you. But you also have that sort of base of the pyramid where the ordinary, everyday experiences in your life do have a mystical quality. They do have a sacred quality. They do have a, a prayerful quality to them. So I said we would uh, we would get into worship, and I don't know if that's the direction you wanted to go with that. Now, I don't know if this whole conversation will follow that. I mostly just wanted to, to clean up a little bit of the discussion from last time by making that point. We did want to talk a little bit about worship and sacredness and some of these things, but um, did you have some thoughts on worship that you wanted to start with? Um, I guess I wasn't expecting to start. Um, oh. You usually start. <laughs> okay, well, I, you could respond to any of that. Um, no, I think you did a... I don't think there's really much more that needs to be said with that. Um, I guess, like, we were, we were talking about having this discussion on worship. Um, you know, there's, like, some motivation on my part to... I guess look backwards, historically, like, in the life of the church, or really, like, religion in general. Um... And make the make the observation that there's there's something very different in the idea of worship, like as in like corporate worship, church worship today, versus how it was viewed at pretty much all points in the past. Um, something like personally, I don't know if this is entirely accurate or not, but I feel like it's um, something like. Uh, an exclusion of elements of worship that maybe are heavier, more unpleasant and uncomfortable, and like a complete embracing of the parts of worship that make me feel good, um, which like ultimately ends up being like a a stripping of like the the holiness out of worship. Well, I think. Um... A lot of worship today is—it's um, based on—it's based on music that you hear on the radio, popular music, um, and it's—I—I I, I look at a lot of it as being like, uh, a, like kind of sissified version of rock music. Yeah. Where it's—it uh, it tries to take on some of that same character and some of the same edginess because it's a—it's um, like a movement of one generation against the previous generation. So it does. It does have a, like a little bit of this kind of edginess to it, but it's kind of like I feel like it's just sweetened, sort of watered down um, rock or pop music. Um, and so if if we take a step backward from that and we say like, okay, well let's look at what's going on in rock music and pop music. Um, I think there is 
you might say, an element of, of worship or uh, experience of the transcendent that happens in some rock music and in some pop music and certainly in, in attending a concert, a rock concert or, you know, a concert that's put on by some hugely successful popular musician. There is something, uh, again, of the experience of the transcendent in that. And there are, I mean, you guys, you probably listened to songs on the radio and um, and felt not only like deeply moved, like your emotions are stirred, but like um, like your soul is in a different plane when you're listening to this thing, even though it's not religious music and, and it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't speak to, I mean, it might even be speaking to something negative, um, but, but you still feel like, like you're sort of lifted above yourself. Um, and so that, that kind of becomes the, the model, I think, for what worship is and what worship can be. It's like, let's try to take, um, take what, what rock music or what popular music can do uh-huh. and let's try to achieve that same thing well, in religious so- music, which is, which is in, in a way, it's not altogether terrible, but to reference what I said in the intro, like we're sort of picking from the bottom of the pyramid right. in order to, in order yeah. to, to create well, and so our like, church worship. Also like, okay, so like touching more on like how this looks for more traditional churches or like us as, as like Mennonites, conservative Mennonites. Um, another side of that same thing is you have like this emphasis on these types of songs that are like, I would categorize it as the victorious living philosophy of modern Christianity, living victorious and, um, you know, like praising God for the victory he's given you and, uh, um, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, like this, this sort of happiness and gratefulness, um, which it should be obvious when I'm saying those things that none of those things are things that you shouldn't be doing, Mm -hmm. but they're also not this. There's also, and this is like a rock and roll kind of connection too, but a lot of it is, uh, um, is, is like try to capture the emotion of an adolescent in love. Um, and like all the pain that goes along yeah, with Yeah, right. That. Which, I so, mean, like, is part of Christianity because that is the symbolism that's used throughout the Bible of, um, like, basically the Christian, like, the way that God interacts with you. Like, it is, like, I mean, why do you, why do we have the Song of Solomon in our Bibles? Mm-hmm, right. Like, it's because it's, it was understood that that's what it's talking about. Yeah. Um... But, so... Yeah, although I, I, I... Well, I guess there's there's angst in the Song of Songs, too. Yeah. So I, I won't bother making my point. Go on. Um. So, like, that's part of, like, that... I guess you could call it, like, that romantic worship. Like, again, there's... That's an element of worship, and a proper element of worship. But it's not all of worship. And it's not, like, the... Not anywhere close to the center of worship. Um, and if you want to just go strictly historically, like examine the history of Christian worship, what is the center point of worship is the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ, Mm -hmm. which I think it's kind of important to define holiness in that context, um, which I guess this is the fruit of several discussions I've had with different people over the last couple weeks, 
that question has come up several times like lately like what actually what does what does holiness mean um, and it strikes me through the course of these conversations that's not that's not something we ever actually bother to define for the most part but the way I guess I would define it is okay like first you need to build this understanding that there are hierarchies and distinctions between things um, so like you have this idea throughout the Old Testament of like these uh, purity laws um, you know that might be in the form of like Israel has to make it keep itself pure in the sense that like you can't marry foreigners or you have to keep yourself poor pure by not mixing fabrics in your clothes or not sowing different seeds in a field or not uh, rounding the corners of your hair or your beard which like these are all um, like s symbolically representative of this idea of holiness which is this idea that there are things that are distinct and like you need to maintain the boundaries between them and the purity of them and like uh, God is the most distinct being um, the most pure being that's what it is that God is holy yeah, I, I think of it as very much like a synonym for sacred in the sense of like both of those really yeah. mean set apart. Right. Um, although holy, holy has a little different character. Like you, you would not say God is sacred, right? But you would say God is holy. I don't know if I can if I can quite nail down like, um, uh, like there's there's something uh, <coughs> something of the supreme in holiness maybe that that isn't necessarily the case in sacredness. Yeah. So like the Greek word agios is we translate it as holy and so like a saint would be like agia christophorus or something like that mm -hmm. saint christopher yeah. um right. like etymologically the best way to define the word is that it means pure um so like god so like you'll have that like in the in the greek liturgy um like agios the declaration agios for God, like declaring holy, 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 um, and like, oh, people are probably to some degree familiar with uh, like the Sanctus or uh, something along that line. It's taken out of Isaiah. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Hosts, mm -hmm. um, which is an ancient Christian hymn. Like, like I said, derived from Isaiah. Um, so, like, there's this this center point throughout traditional Christian worship on the holiness of God and that God is holy and Christ is holy and that we are called to be holy um and like yeah like the best way I can think of to define that is that God is set apart from us and distinct from us and separate from us mm -hmm. and above us like, he's not one of us. We're created, like, we're created in his image, but God is distinct and separate from us. And this is, uh, you know, represented in the Old Testament with this idea of all of the veils and borders and separations between any given individual in Israel and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat of God, like the place where God is said to dwell. Mm -hmm. Like the point, the point isn't that God 
uh, wants nothing to do with you. The point is that God is holy. Right. Yeah, I just I want to mention like a couple other uh, words related to sacred um, saint. You, we mentioned already, and you you tied that to this Greek word for holy. Um, but I mean, that's just like most literally is someone who is set apart. Right. Um, yeah, and, and sacrament. Like uh, sacrament would, would also be like related to sacred or related to, to Sanctus, you mentioned that right. also. Uh, so it's just like a sacred thing or a sacred action. And um, we have, a, well, in Catholicism, we have these seven sacraments, like these are the seven sacred things. But uh, like a more... We, what are you saying? You're a Catholic? No, 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 no. I <laughs> no, mean, like no. that, that, is, that is a part of Christian t tradition generally. Um, but a more, um, but like, yeah, like perspective these... of, of sacramental living is like, okay, those things are, they're, they're kind of at the top of that pyramid in terms of what are sacraments. Right. But, um, but all these little actions that you that you take are actions that, that can be set apart to God. Um, and they're actions that, that can transform you in a similar way. Maybe not in as extreme of a way as being baptized. Um, but there are, there are. There are, there are basically an infinite number of sacraments uh, once you get down to the bottom of that pyramid. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. But really, I just wanted to make that point about about emphasizing this idea these things are set apart. Yeah, and like that's... Um, relating this back to this idea of worship, if you have only like these shallower elements of worship, what you lose ultimately is, is the holiness. And that relates directly to this Okay, I need to go down a little bit of rabbit trail for this comment to make sense. Um, and it is a discussion we actually want to have later in more detail. Um, it relates to this idea in Protestantism, especially American Protestantism, that the veil in the temple is rent, and that means I personally have access to the holiest place. And like what this ultimately ends up doing is... Um, What this ultimately ends up doing practically for people, because they take this attitude that there is no, there is no veil, there is no separation between God and man anymore, is that God ceases to be holy. Um, Christ ceases to be holy, and instead we have this idea that Christ, you know, Christ is just like one of us. He's, so this he's, is like a theological version of uh, if everyone is super, then no one will be. Um, but, but what yeah. you're saying is like, sometimes when we talk about everything being holy, what we're really saying is that nothing is holy. Yeah, right. Um, which is good. Um, I like that way of summing it up. I have a difficult time sometimes summing my thoughts up concisely. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, that's mostly what I'm here for. <laughs> right. Um, oh, I'd say you do quite a bit more than that. Um, anyway, where was it going? Yeah, so like, there's that idea, you know, I have direct access to God. It's like, well, no, you don't. Like, nowhere is that ever even hinted at in Scripture. What you do have direct access to is Christ. Um, like, but it says, like, Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. It's like, that's the hierarchy that we... And like, Paul tells us, speaking of hierarchies, that Christ is over man. Like, we go through Christ. So like there is, like uh, any, any, I guess I, like I use the word hierarchy a couple times now, like hierarchy and holiness are 
closely related ideas. Well, and even when I said that thing about like if everything is holy, then then nothing is holy. Like um, that's that's sort of sometimes the 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 temptation or the threat of this idea that everything yeah. is holy. But but the solution to that is you view it as hierarchy. You view it as like some of the holy things are at the top of that pyramid. And yeah, everything is holy. Not everything is at the top, but those you know the things that at the bottom of the pyramid, your ordinary everyday sacred experiences are also really, really important. Yeah. So like you have this idea, like, so in ancient Egypt, you have this idea that uh, um, the Pharaoh is the son of, I can't remember which god is the Pharaoh said to be the son of, is it Ta? Uh, I think it's Ra. Maybe. Like, I, I think it's hard to pin these things down in, in Egyptian mythology because they're kind of all over the place all the time but maybe it is raw and so like you have that idea of the Pharaoh is the son of which of like the all-important God and like in Rome very quickly turns into this idea that uh, the Emperor is divine and that's something that like that happens in like China and like basically anywhere where where there's an empire mm -hmm. like it ends up being that in some way or another you recognize that the empire emperor is divine so like a modern person informed by like this sort of marxist interpretation of history that uh like hierarchies are oppressive and we need to get rid of them will take that as like oh this is just a means of oppression if you can get the people to see you as divine then they won't ever rise up against you it's like, well, no, actually, it's a recognition of reality. Because that's kind of the way things are. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned empires, but you, we have the same idea attached to kings yeah. in Europe. And then I we, mean, we also have the same have idea the attached same, to the president of the yeah, United that's, States. Yeah, that's what's going to be my next point. Like, I mean, you, you have, you had tons of people under President Trump saying that... Uh, like he's this, God's anointed. Yeah, right. Yeah, and they'll qualify saying, well, I know he has problems, but I believe he's put it in place by God to, yeah. you know, work whatever... He's going to work, um, and and um, you you probably have that in a less pronounced way with a with a democratic president in general. Um, I mean, a, a one belonging to the Democrat Party, but you still have that idea. Um, and I, it was really interesting to me in the election, um, in the campaigns, there was quite a bit made about. Biden's faith and, and not right. not not necessarily by his opponents not people trying to attack and say he's not a true Catholic or whatever there was a little bit of that going on but but there was a lot made in terms of um, like there was a strong religious spiritual aspect to his campaign yeah. as well right um, anyway so and, and and I guess the point I wanted to make by bringing that up <coughs> is that in those cases um, now this is probably more true of Trump than Biden because because I think it was built into Biden's campaign in a big way, and it was a little bit into Trump too. But it, it wasn't it wasn't the king or the president that was forcing that idea on people. It was the people themselves that that had this idea right. that that there is something divine about the president. Right. Um, anyway, going back to so mentioning like the idea of the veil being rent um, and like a more traditional. Christian view in the past is that the veil isn't rent so that anybody can go into the Holy of Holies because objectively like in the in the literal sense that didn't happen they just made a new veil um, 
and then didn't allow people in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Um, but like that's also not what Scripture says. Like what Scripture says, if you look at Hebrews, like it's like Hebrews talks about the priesthood of all believers, and Peter talks about the priesthood of all believers. But what it says in Hebrews is that, like, we're our royal priesthood, but Christ is the high priest. Mm -hmm. So, go back to that, you know, that hierarchy of the temple. The priests are, are are allowed into the holy place, and so like in the Middle Ages, this is the nave of the church. Um, so like that's really interesting. So like, in like a Byzantine era Orthodox church, what you would do is. Like during the liturgy, when it comes time, like for the cherubic hymn and like the the body of Christ, the, the consecrated host, it's time for it to be brought into the sanctuary. So like it's brought from the outside, like the priest has gone out into the narthex and got the bread and the wine, and then he comes back in through the royal doors, which is the center doors, um, walks it down the aisle and, and in procession to the altar. Um, so it used to be, like I said, in like medieval Byzantine Christianity, that part of the liturgy at that point was catechumens and those that aren't Christians. You have to leave the holy place now. You're not welcome. Like you can't be here for this part. Um, and like there's this uh, admonition um, as part of that, like holy things are for the holy, and. Like, don't let me betray you like Judas did with a kiss. Like, this is part of the procession of the holy, or of the consecrated host, into the Holy of Holies. Like, the entering of Christ into the Holy of Holies. Um, so, like, all of that is to, like, bring about this uh, understanding. This is how Christianity traditionally approaches the idea of worship. Is with this, like, extreme holiness of God and of Christ. Um, which is in stark contrast to... Okay, I want to I interrupt a little bit and then, then come back in with worship after I finish up this point. Yeah. Um, so, and I've I, I got to do a little more processing on this uh, this idea when you say you criticize this idea of uh, the veil being rent, meaning that doesn't mean we have access to the Holy of Holies. But I will say, like, okay, just as a thought experiment, assume that it, that it does. Um, and actually, I took this from you anyways. But um, when, when the high priest in Israel would go into the Holy of Holies, you tie a rope around his ankle so that uh, he might die while he's in there. Right. And and so you can pull his dead body out of the Holy yeah, of Holies. Yeah, because you're not allowed to go in there to get his dead body. Right, yeah. If, if you do, then... Then you'll die. Yeah, right. <laughs> There'll just be piles of bodies. Right. And so, so the idea was that approaching God in this way is so dangerous right. that even the high priest, every time he goes in there, we're going to take this precaution. Yeah, and it's like the same thing. Uh, well, well, it, I want to continue. It. Well, yeah, if you've got another example, go Yeah, for it. well, it's the same thing. Was it like, uh, is it Elijah or Elisha? God passes by and has to hide him in the cleft of the rock. This is like, you can't look on my face. If you do, you'll die. Mm -hmm, right. Um, and the same thing with Isaiah in the temple. Um, he sees the presence of God. And like his his immediate response to that is like I'm gonna die. Mm -hmm. Well, and and okay, so that's that's if you're approaching God directly. Okay, so we'll say that's the very peak of that pyramid of of holiness. Right. And and you cannot handle it and live. 
but we'll say we go we go down just a step and you're saying well maybe we don't we still don't have access to the holy of holies but you're saying at least we have access to christ but right. you look and see john has a vision of christ that's recorded in revelation and when christ appears to him he falls on the ground as one dead yeah um right. it's it's a really serious like overwhelming yeah. experience like you still the holiness of approaching christ is very extreme right so if, if you're this uh well because like it's important to remember in that context like christ is god he's not like an emissary of god mm -hmm. he is god uh but again like if, if you're you're the protestant who's saying um we can we we can all have access to the holy of holies or or even just we can all have access to god through christ okay fine <coughs> But what does it mean to have access? Um, I mean, when John, again, when John beholds Christ, um, it's, it's serious business. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not casual, but it is, it is extremely holy yeah. for him to be able to, to, to see Christ in that way. Well, yeah, and like, remember, like this John, I mean, he saw Christ. He yeah, was, right. He was his disciple for three three years, traditionally, is what you say. Mm -hmm. um, and like he also saw him after the resurrection, and he saw him ascend into heaven. And then he sees him again on the throne. And it's like, how does that make sense? Like, you've seen this guy a lot. Yeah. Okay, you, so, so now that we're approaching Christ, we're not dropping dead, but we're almost dropping dead. Right. And so from there, then, then I want you to pick up with what you were going to say about worship. Um drop dead <laughs> I, I mean i think that is a good way to like so no, like i mentioned good. the cherubic hymn like there's a couple different um versions of cherubic hymns throughout the history of christianity um i guess maybe i should explain what a cherubic hymn is is uh basically so like the point it would be at in traditional liturgy like i mentioned is when the uh the body and the blood of Christ are brought into the sanctuary for communion. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I mean, there you're you're in the presence of Christ. Yeah, so you're in the presence of Christ and in the presence of Christ as of the sacrifice. Um, part of the uh, so like it's called the Cherubic Hymn because, um, like in several versions of it, what you're doing is you're saying like we are mystically representing the cherubim that are uh you know around the throne of christ crying out holy 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 <laughs> like that's what the cherubim are doing in revelation mm -hmm. um so that's why you call it the cherubic hymns because you're putting yourself in this hymn in the place of those cherubim um and like typically what follows after the cherubic hymn and some prayers is the sanctus holy 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 uh, so you sing the hymn that the cherubs sing um but the chair of them seem um but it's like a central aspect of cherubic hymns is like you have to lay aside everything earthly everything carnal all of your cares all of your uh worldly concerns in order to enter into the presence of christ like because if you don't then like you you can't receive him as Lord of all. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll say that that's the, uh, the, the like the intellectual message of the Tereabuk hymn. Yeah. What what's the uh, the the effect of it on the spirit of the person? Um. Uh, holiness. 
Well, I mean, I, I just asked that question. I mean, I think it, it falls in line with what we're saying about uh, falling on the ground as one dead. I mean, yeah. It's like like this uh, meant to be a very overwhelming, not not a happy, fun kind of a song. No. But um, but a, a so song like, of like ultimate matter, ultimate importance. If you listen to like uh, orthodox, uh, like compositions of the liturgy, um, and like I would say especially Russian ones. It would be more recognizable to us as Westerners because Russian, Russian liturgies tend to use something like a Western musical form. Um, so, like, you don't have to uh, retrain your mind <laughs> with Greek musical theory in order to understand, like, in order to feel what's going on. But so, like, the Cherubic hymn is the turning point in the liturgy, where you move away from like the cheerfulness and the thankfulness that's at the beginning and like the cherubic comes in cherubic hymn comes in and it's oftentimes like very very heavy um very reverential and even if it's not like in even if it's in a a major key so like oftentimes what you'll have is the first part of the liturgy is in a, is in a major key then the cherubic hymn comes in in a minor key and the rest of the liturgy is minor. Okay, and and um, that that transition like means there's a shift to to a kind of like right. darkness or heaviness. Right, a seriousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's maybe better. And but like that's not always the case. Like sometimes it's still the re- like it's still all in major. Um, but like even then, still the cherubic hymn is going to be very slow. Like they typically take like ten minutes to sing the sing the song that has like. Maybe a dozen words in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably more than that, but it's not very many words. Um, so it's even like it's it's going to be slow and reverential and try to bring out this idea of holiness. Yeah, um, like you're entering into the presence of holiness, and also like Christ is entering into our presence, mm-hmm. and this is serious business. Yeah. So which I guess is a good way to sum up. Um, kind of my attitude of modern worship is we're not treating this like it's serious business. Okay, I, I do want to ask one question on that note. Um, you, you talk about the Cherubic hymn so much, but the Cherubic hymn is, is only one hymn. Right. Um, is, there, is there a place for, um, for like the, the approach that we take in contemporary Christian music? Is there a place for that in a worship service, or what's your take on that? Um, so... I mean, there I have to, I guess I would have to confess some ignorance. Um, like, it's just been so long <laughs> since I've taken part in any kind of contemporary worship service. Okay. Um, okay, well, uh, now I, I did I did ask that specifically about contemporary Christian music, but in my mind, when you're talking about the Cherubic Hymn, I'm also thinking of uh, Western, you know, Protestant music traditions. And um, I, I can't say that I, that I dislike... Um, gospel music, but I do feel like when when church music makes a shift into gospel music, yeah, um, which which maybe kind of starts like in the 1860s, um, then the music becomes more about about fun, <coughs> and and when it's more about fun, it feels like it's less about worship. Um, now, and I say I can't exactly say that I don't like the gospel music. Um, I, however, I do feel like well, we we pushed out something that was better than this, something that was that was more serious and more worshipful, 
And, you know, I mean, we were talking about what is mystical experience, and we mentioned humility and awe. And, and in gospel music, I don't, I don't feel that there's a character of humility and awe. Certainly not awe. Right. Um, and, and again, in the church music that preceded that, then you do have, you do have this sense of humility. You do have a sense, uh, like a very powerful sense of awe. Um, and so I guess we could even just say, like, in, in the, uh, the gospel hymns, um, now something like I'll Fly Away would be much later than the, than the 1860s or 1870s, um, but, but, I mean, I'll Fly Away would be like a classic kind of gospel number. Right. Um, I, I mean, is there, is there a place for that, do you think, in worship? I mean, I think so. I don't, like... I mean, I don't consider myself like the authority. Yeah, yeah, right. No, that's but, fine. I'm, I'm, I'm putting you in a corner by asking that. Yeah, question, but no, like, but you're asking for my opinion. It's like, well, I mean, I even think there's maybe not in like church worship, but there is a place mm-hmm. for this contemporary music. Even. Yeah, like, well, I don't have an objection to the existence of it. Um, yeah, right. But I, I, right. I, just, I just think that it's usually misused. Yeah. So like listening to some friends of mine. And observing them, listening to and engaging in this music, um, and like getting engaged with it, and like kind of dancing around and getting emotional. And like I was thinking, like I think you're mistaking this for a spiritual experience. Like it is sort of a mis- of a spiritual experience. Yeah. But well, I think again, it's like it's lower on that pyramid than yeah. it, than it could be for your worship. Now, now I asked you that question, and and you kind of said like, well, yes, there is a place for it. I'm not sure if the place for it is church. And I did mention the song "I'll Fly Away" specifically. Um, I mean, I'm I played in in a handful of bands, but uh, there's a band that I've been pretty involved with that does lots <laughs> of um, lots of shows in in bars. And um, I mean other places too, but you know I mean we'll we'll put on a show and it'll be it'll be midnight in a bar and we'll we'll start playing I'll fly away and um, I mean you know like people are moving around and dancing like what you're describing in the church service right um, but they're doing this in a bar and I feel like like this is a good thing <laughs> um, I feel like like it's nice that um, like we 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 have brought something that's that has a little bit of sacredness to it um, into that setting. And so I think that's positive. When I sing that song in a church service, then I kind of feel like, eh, I'd rather sing something else. Yeah. Um, I'd rather I'd rather sing something that, that has more of a quality of sacredness or holiness to it. Um, and so I guess my, my take on it is kind of similar. And to move it over to contemporary Christian music, um, like, should there be this kind of music in the world? I'm not a big fan of it, um, of contemporary Christian music generally. As a musician, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I'm, I, I don't like that, um, that Christian music is just kind of aping yeah. these secular trends. Well, but like, um, we've also brought out how... The, well, I, I mean, I feel like, like Christian music in the past yeah. has been really important, even from yeah. a musical perspective. Right. And now I feel like it's actually totally irrelevant from or, a musical yeah, yeah. perspective, even though it's trying so hard to be relevant. Um, well, um, that's because but, <laughs> the music it's basing itself off of is itself irrelevant. <laughs> well... Um, like it's no, no, I, I think well, no, like contemporary really Christian is. music is, is less relevant than that music. Yeah, though. I know, but so like that's a consequence of that. So you're, mm-hmm. you're basing it off of off of musical patterns and styles that in 20 years nobody's going to listen to and care about. Yeah, right. Um, 
Now, I was going to make the comment, um, there was this one place, I, I was a full-time performing musician for a while, and, and I had these restaurants in, in different towns that I, you know, usually when I'm in this town, then I'll play it, I'll eat at this restaurant. Uh, I mean, no, nothing fancy usually, uh, but there was just a Burger King that was on the highway between towns where I would go sometime, and I stopped into this place, and they were always playing contemporary Christian music on the radio. And as I said, I confess, like, I'm not a big fan of, of the type of music, the genre generally. But I would sit there and I would still feel like, you know, it is kind of nice that I can sit down in the place. And, yeah. um, like, there, there is an expression of, of faith um, and spirituality in the world. Um, like, I, I felt like it was kind of nice that that such a thing existed yeah and and again i didn't want to be singing that stuff in a church service because i feel like it lacks the quality that that you should have in the church service but i um, still feel like there's that kind of low level sacredness that's happening there which right. which seems like a good thing to me um you know like i did mention like i think it's okay that these things exist and kind of think maybe they should and have their place and all that and all that the other side of that too um, is that what well, that is well, like that's so much of the mission of the church right now though is uh, of, of the musicians in the church is to like uh, uh, aim for that low-level sacredness well yeah so and, like and I that's saw the, this, the way that we can try I saw to be relevant flyer at church this morning for some kind of Anabaptist traditional Anabaptist seminar that was like something on restoring the spirit of Anabaptism and I saw that 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 title and it's like I get excited because that's my mission mm -hmm. it's like that's what I'm trying part of what I'm trying to do here in this podcast, and so then I, I read their description, and they're talking about the Great Commission, um, go out and baptize all nations, in this, like, this sort of evangelical model. It's like, no, that's not the spirit of Anabaptism. That's far from it. Yeah. Um, and, like, going out, taking that thought further, and, like, realizing, like, the Great Commission is something that's important. Obviously, it's the last command Christ on earth gave to his disciples, but... Um, like we take it out of context and apply it in this shallow way um, and, and the best indicator I guess I'd have for that is okay so let's read what these disciples then did and said next mm -hmm. and how they what they took that commission to mean yeah. and it's nothing approaching this sort of evangelical model right. that we take it to mean well, even even that idea, you know, I mentioned relevance and kind of criticized this idea of relevance. Well, um, I, I guess I did give my example of Burger King, which has all these different people that are Christian or not or whatever. But you know, I mean, if if your if your mission is like put out your Christian radio station, again, I don't want to be like too critical of that. But um, but it's it's it, it is there for Christians, right. which is good. I mean. Uh, you know, you want to build up Christians, but like, don't pretend it's evangelical if yeah. only Christians are going to ever listen to it. Right. Um, and this kind of goes back to uh, something we were discussing in so, mis in mysticism. So I, sorry, I mentioned the word relevance, but like, like if you say that that's relevant to the culture, you're wrong. Right, yeah. it's, it's not. It's relevant no, it's to Christians. Completely irrelevant to the culture. Right. Like, <laughs> you think it's relevant? Like, why don't you listen to what the culture actually has to say about it? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um. Right. I mean, don't take that too far, because the culture also has has always had negative things to say about Christianity, like true Christianity. Um, but... Well, actually, <laughs> I mean, there's a truth in that, but like, but generally, like, 
wherever wherever true Christianity goes, it, it spreads like wildfire. Like yeah, the culture right. loves it and embraces it wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, well, like the thing I was trying to bring out is uh, it says several times throughout the New Testament, like judge things by their fruits and judge teachers by their fruits and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, I want to say um, I think it's okay that these things are there. On the other hand, like maybe I'm a little more hesitant if I actually look at their fruits, um, which has been like uh, the church just like bleeding out young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, man. And I, I mean, you go into a church and they they sorry, I don't want to harp too much on contemporary Christian <laughs> music, but you go to a church and they're they're playing. Uh, their worship teams can play contemporary <coughs> Christian music, and they're doing it so that they can be relevant. And like everybody in the church is is 80 years old, right? Um, and like I, I'm just imagining if you're you're a, a young, we'll we'll just use the word seeker, and you go into this church and you think I don't know what this is all about, but I kind of feel this pull and I want to see if I want to be a part of it. And then you see uh, you see a bunch of old people, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with old people, but they're engaging it in a form of worship that they don't believe in. Right. Um, like, I mean, it's probably not worship. And I've I've made this. So so I mean, but it's not going to connect to that young person that happens in the doors because because what he's witnessing, like, there's just such a such a dissonance. Well, so like I've made this comment before. Worship to me, I think I would define worship as attention. Uh, like, where is your attention? What are you attending to? when you're engaging in something like that's what you're worshiping and it seems to me listening to how they describe it and why these things appeal to people like what you're attending to is yourself which by extension like by my own definition means you're worshiping yourself um so like if my worship the aim of my worship is that my faith is strengthened and i feel better and I'm not down. Like, okay, that's that's I'm worshiping myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 not worshiping Christ. I'm not worshiping God. Yeah. And I'm essentially just using God and Christ selfishly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's I I wish I knew where where I picked up this this uh, paradigm. <coughs> Um, not where I picked it up, but I wish I knew where it originated, um, because because I see references to this all over the place, and I just I wish I could pin down the source. But you have, um, you have, you you can divide, basically divide music history into into two periods, like only two periods. Everything from before this uh, this split you would call romantic, and every, or sorry, before it you would call classical, and everything after this split you would call romantic. Um, so classical, uh, classical in that sense includes uh, ancient, um, ancient music, ancient art of all kinds. Um, it also includes um, Renaissance and medieval, and it includes, uh, um, uh, you know, like what we usually use in the narrowest sense of classical music as well. Right. Um, and then romantic begins in the romantic era. Uh, so whether you're talking about romantic poetry or romantic music or whatever, then that's romantic and everything afterward you say is romantic before. Now, sorry, I, I spent a lot of time setting this up. Yeah. In in the classical, which is like, 
I, I'll just I'll just pick the year 1800. Um, there's always going to be something a little arbitrary about a year, but we'll say we'll say this divide happens in 1800, and and there's a lot of bleed on either side of that, um, on either side of whatever date you would happen to pick. Yeah. Um, so so prior to that, if you're in this classical mode, then the purpose of art and music um, is basically to to properly order the soul. Um, you have like Bach who says. The aim of all music is the glory of God and the refreshing of the soul. Right. Um, and then in the Romantic era, then music is much more about um, expressing my feelings, uh, being in touch with my feelings, um, and and not that those are like are evil things. That's going to be part of, of of any type of of art, whether you want it to be or not. I mean, if you're if you're engaging in this true worship, like you're still experiencing emotions. While you're engaged in it, right? But but the aim of it is not related to your emotions. Right. Now the properly proper ordering of your spirit, um, actually, you could you could say like that's actually like a sacramental view. Like if you partake of this thing, then you become a changed person. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar to like a Catholic description of like, well, what does a sacrament do? It uh, conveys the grace of God upon you. Mm -hmm. Like, which is actually kind of an accurate description of what a sacrament does. Um, right. It can be twisted and misapplied and misused, which I'm not trying to suggest that all Catholics do. Um, I'll go ahead and give them the benefit of the doubt in this description and say that's what Protestants perceive them as doing. Yeah. Yeah, and so so romantic, like I said, that we'll, we'll just we'll just kind of be uh, uh, kind of brutish about the way we define it. We'll just say that it's after 1800, then we'll say everything that's produced is basically romantic, um, and so that's definitely going to include rock music and yeah. pop music of today. Um, those things are all about all about expression of emotion, and they have no interest in the proper ordering of the spirit. And uh, and that's the stuff that our church music is based on. Not only our contemporary stuff, but our, like to a degree, uh, our gospel music isn't based on rock music. It's older than that, um, but it, it still has this kind of romantic character. It's about um, it's about this like fun, exciting, emotional experience. Um, and anyways, I just I brought that up. I kind of forgot exactly what what you were saying about. The music of today, but it but it, it it just seemed like you were characterizing it as being all about emotions and feelings. You were saying it's it's focus on yourself. Yeah, right. And and I was just saying, well, that's part of that's part of being a modern person. It actually yeah, is being right. focused on yourself. Yeah. So like romantic, like the romantic m movement is a like a product of like both a product of and reaction to uh, the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, and humanism. Now, there's a lot of things I really like about the Romantic movement. Yeah. Um, and and as a, a literary guy, I've got some uh, some heroes that are uh, Romantics. Um. Um. And and I, I kind of like I side with them when you say they're reacting against the Enlightenment. Right. Um. And I mean, you know, I'm cheering them on because. Yeah, but so like there's is like kind of this like sundering of humanity that goes on mm -hmm. because of humanism ironically um but no like it's more accurate to say that uh like the enlightenment the age of reason so on and so forth and romanticism are both like two sides of the humanist movement mm -hmm. yeah um which like the fundamental thrust of humanism is on the individual 
um, like your individual right. experience. Right. So, which is uh, like very, very different from a historical view of personhood, uh, which puts like no emphasis <laughs> on the individual. Well, you have like uh, know thyself, which is one of the Delphic maxims in inscribed on the wall in the temple to to Apollo at Delphi, right. and that that becomes like a, a a creed for Socrates: know thyself. So, I mean, there's there's a there's a place for the individual um, in the ancient world too. Yeah, but it's, like the individual exists within a context. Right. Um, so, like, I was somebody had a book at church today, like on their family history, and they were showing me, and it's like this the village in Switzerland where their family was from, and showing these houses, and it's like, oh yeah, these are all typical family houses, and somebody makes a comment about like. Oh, those are some nice green shutters they have there. And I was just thinking, like, yeah, that's because everybody has green shutters. <laughs> uh, but just thinking about that, how um, it's not it's not correct to say it's a collectivist culture in, like, this communist sense of collectivist. But it is a culture where you exist entirely within the context of the culture. Like, you're... Your individuality, like in yourself, is something that is found within this context. Mm -hmm. um, and like, and it can't be, it can't be like removed from it and distinguished from it. Yeah, which which is part of the danger of mysticism. I mean, what I was saying, like, there's maybe there's reasons why the church needs to yeah. to condemn the mystics, even though the mystics wind up shaping the church uh, yeah. for, for the rest of the, the church's future. Yeah, because um, like mysticism run amok becomes <laughs> humanism. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just making the, the more direct point <coughs> that it becomes um, like extreme individualism because right. it is rooted in individual experience. And, and you, can't let that, uh, you can't let that be the dominant strain in the culture because if it is, you don't have a culture. And you don't have anything you can pass on. Like the, the church is what passes on those ancient mystics and those medieval mystics. Like, uh, well, the culture <laughs> is what passes on. So the, the culture can't break yeah, down. So we well, there's were, no mystical tradition either. We were studying First Peter in chapter two in our Sunday school class this morning, and like that's like Peter there is talking about like, uh, um, like coming to Christ as a lively stone, and like we're all living stones. Um, built on the chief cornerstone and the stumbling block, which is Christ, and so on and so forth. So we were, we were kind of going with this image about, like, building up the spiritual house. And the teacher was saying something about, like, like how this is talking about us, like, me building up my spiritual house. And I looked at that, and I looked at, like, where Jesus says to Peter, like, the same Peter who's writing this, um writing this letter and then using the same image that Jesus had given to him and extending that to everybody else. Like Jesus says, like, you're Peter, which is rock, mm -hmm. and on this rock I will build my church. And like Peter's extending that imagery in that passage. Um, it's like, wait a minute here, and I said this, like, he's not talking about my spiritual house, he's talking about the church. Yeah. Like, I'm not building my spiritual house, I'm building the church. Yeah. You like, know, I'm not, like, these aren't stones in my own spiritual house, like, I'm a stone in the church mm -hmm. like which means um if you ever see a stone building like a building made of lots of little stones laid up and mortared in like you kind of 
don't see the individual stones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also kind of reminiscent, though, of, of uh, um, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh -huh. Because you're saying, well, hey, I'm not building my own spiritual house. I'm building the church. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. And, like, I mean, in a way, the best way to, to build your own spiritual house is just to not focus on it and focus on, on the thing that's bigger than that. Focus on, on the will of God, uh, the, the kingdom of God. Um, build that church instead and your own spiritual house that's like within you is going to wind up being in perfect shape without you ever worrying about it. Uh-huh. Now you mentioned, uh, I'm going to go back to this idea of, of in some types of worship you're focused on yourself and that's the center of your attention um, and you're not focused on God and that means that means you're worshiping yourself and you're not worshiping God because that's where your attention is. Um, oh boy, I kind of lost my thought here. Um, oh man, I had something intriguing, but I've lost it. I'm sorry. Um, oh, I guess I guess it really was on that on that same idea of uh, that um, seeking first the kingdom of God, uh, and. Um, if you're if you're like worried about your emotional state and is your um, is your and I don't want to everything I say I got to be cautious about because like there's a there's a truth in everything that I criticize. Um, it, it, you're worried about this question of like where is my heart? Is my heart right with God? Um, well, I mean the best the best answer for that really is um, put your attention on God. Don't put your attention on your feelings. Yeah. And when you do that, your your feelings will take care of themselves. Well, yeah, and like that goes back to that, like, and and the self-expression too. Like, um, uh, I mean, if you're if you're the the musician or whatever, if you're focused on self-expression, who cares? If you're focused on something that's higher than yourself, uh, everybody's gonna know that's you. That's that's like, I mean, you have this kind of perfect. Uh, self-expression you have like kind of this undeniable identity as an individual um, and you get it by not trying you get it by focusing on something that's higher than you so if, if self-expression is your goal then in order to do it well <coughs> in order to do it well just just focus on God like, um, yeah so uh, like going back to like that idea of the cherubic hymn like when God like when Christ enters into the into the temple and during that at that point in the liturgy like there's the uh like the admonition like well, the commandment i should say like let's lay aside all of our earthly cares so that we can receive him lord of all um so and but before that maybe if i if i understand kind of the symbolism and the imagery of the liturgy and sorry uh, to any of you who might be orthodox if i've got this wrong but there is more of a place at the beginning of the liturgy for me as a person. And so, like, you have a lot of litanies at the beginning of the liturgy that are focused on, like, um, carnal matters, like, temporal matters, earthly things. Um, and, like I mentioned, you have, like, a lighter feeling of worship at that point. So it's like, here, there is a place in the worship for you as, a, as an individual. And for your concerns, for your earthly struggles, uh, your individualism, 
but when the Lord of all enters into the temple, like, you'd better lay that all down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, I, yeah, did you have a little more to go with that? I wanted to get into this. This is right on the same subject. Um, and I'm robbing you <laughs> of the opportunity to change the subject. So I was thinking of this idea, but it does relate to that, um, of Christ as Lord. And I think maybe, did we mention this in a, in a, in a conversation that we uh, recorded? I can't remember. It's hard to tell because we have lots of conversations that we don't record. <laughs> Things get kind of lost in the shuffle sometimes. Um, but this idea of Christ as Lord, and it's like the same thing that Christ, when having a discussion with the Jews, uh, he makes this proclamation. It's like, before Abraham and Isaac, I am. And what he's doing there is invoking the name of God as he gave it to Moses. Um, which is ultimately him saying, like, you know that that spirit, that God that was speaking to Moses on the mountain was me. Um, and you see that reflected in the New Testament that Christ is referred to as Lord. Um, and in the Old Testament... So, like, in the King James, I don't know, I can't say for every other translation, but in the King James, it will say the Lord when talking about God, and the Hebrew would be the name of God, which you don't say. And there's a mark on the word to remind you that you don't say this word. Instead, you, instead you say the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, so, like the writers of the New Testament are using that same convention and saying Christ is the Lord, when what they're really saying is Christ is God himself. Yeah. Um, and like what Christ himself said is, I'm the God that spoke to Moses, that delivered the law to Moses. Yeah, right. In, in Hebrew, what you have is is um, Yahweh or, or Jehovah or yeah. Yahweh. Or I mean, well, why, I, I, I was intentionally not saying that. <laughs> well, but but you have this, this basically Y-H-W-H, um, and... And later, uh, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, but later um, scribes come in and put vowels in all the words, which are just marks that appear underneath the consonants. And, right. and they don't put in the, the vowels that go with the name of God. They put in the vowels that go with Adonai, right. which is Lord. Right. So, so that's, I mean, you mentioned the King James translation, but that's the way they deal with it in Hebrew. Is like that word is written in there, that name of God, but you don't say it. You say, essentially, you say the Lord. And so Jesus there is not using the name of God. Yeah, so like you also see the symbol in Christian iconography, and it's still present in... Like or, or the New Testament writers yeah. sorry, are not using the name of God, they're using the Lord. You'll also see it in like uh, contemporary Eastern iconography, where, so you have a, an icon of Christ, any icon of Christ. He has a halo, and inside of the halo is a cross with Christ's face at the center. And on the three bars of the cross that are visible, because like the bottom bar, like obviously his face is in the way, there is actually a tetragram. So, like, for the, if you don't know what that means, the, the name of God in Hebrew is, is a tetragram. That's what you call it. Yeah, that's four letters, Y-H-W-H. I mean, basically, it's... Yeah. Um, um, yod Hey vav Hey. Right. Um, but, like, there is, like, this... Uh, this deliberate statement. Um, oh, it, it's, it's, it actually spells out Greek words, which... Um, translate as he who is, which is essentially the same meaning as the Hebrew name of God. Um, so like there's this recognition 
like throughout the history of Christianity that this is like whenever it says this name of God in the Old Testament, it's talking about Christ. Um, and I was, you know, working that through. I need to study it more to see if I, this theory is, actually holds water. But, like, there actually is a pattern in the Old Testament as to which name for God is being used, when and where. Like, there are a number of names for God throughout the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, you have that same idea. Like, this <laughs> is going down <laughs> pretty far down a rabbit trail, but I just... I guess say it while it's on my mind that, uh, like, God does say to Moses that, you know, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, like, they didn't know, they didn't know me. They never knew my name. And I'm the first, you're the first one, Moses, that I'm going to tell this to. And here it is. And Christianity connects that with the symbolism that uh, you can't see God and you can't know God, but you can see Christ and know Christ. And so, when you have that sort of manifestation of God, it is Christ. You get this, uh, now, let's see, Jordan Peterson doesn't, <coughs> often he doesn't refer to God, he refers to being. You're right. Um, and I, I'm not sure if that maybe comes from Spinoza. Um, I think it does. But uh, Spinoza would also refer to God, too. So I, I might be wrong about that. Um, but, but it is kind of interesting that like to, to say being instead of saying God is actually a reference to what God, who God says he right. is. Right, yeah. But it's also like John calls Christ the Logos, which is actually a pretty similar concept, um, in, in some ways. Um, anyway, this is all drifting considerably away from the subject of worship. Um, I guess where I was trying to go with that is, uh, like, there is some degree in which we need to incorporate an understanding of what it is that we're actually worshiping, mm -hmm. and have this sort of penitential and reverential approach to worship. Yeah. And like I mentioned, like, I use the example of the liturgy, um, which isn't necessarily like a statement like, oh, we need to go back to using this fifth or sixth century liturgy that the orthodox are using or something like that but i'm saying like no here's a precedence in christian history and a model that's a good model for maybe how we can approach this idea of worship like there is a place for me as a person there is a place for me coming into the presence of god um in a lighter sense um and like this sense of gratefulness and thanksgiving and also like uh entreating the Lord for my concerns, and so on and so forth. But there comes a place where where you go in the worship of God, where it's time to lay that aside, and allow, actually allow the presence of God to enter in and worship it. Yeah, I mean, I think that also ties with what you said earlier about um, a, a lot of worship focuses on me, the individual, and like what experience am I having right now, and it's not focused on yeah. God. And, and I am going to say we, that when I... we talk about, hang on just a second, when we talk about um, like moving away from uh, a a strictly rational approach to religion and moving to more of a mystical approach to religion, um, I mean, it seems in a way that that true worship um, itself 
may be the solution to the problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is, and that's kind of why I want to talk about worship. And um, that, that is something I've said a number of times in discussions I've had with people. I don't remember, again, if it's something we've recorded or not, that I think the solution to things, and so like even like the solution to heresies that pop up in our circles, um, pop up in, in within Christianity, well, we can try to uh, combat heresy with dogmatism or with proper doctrine but i think the actual answer is worship mm -hmm. which uh like goes back to something else i said that and this that in the middle ages arianism just kind of fades out it doesn't like there there's a point in the early middle ages like at the time of the fall of rome it's probably accurate to say most christians in the west are arians but a couple centuries later, there's none left. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't like this political or organized effort to oust Arianism. Um, instead, what there was is there was just worship. And this ultimately brought about union in the church and like the, the, the ultimate disappearance of heresy. So like Arianism was a huge, huge problem. They tried to combat it with uh, dogmatism um, and Arianism actually won that fight. So, like we all know about the Council of Nicaea, which was convened primarily to deal with the question of Arianism. Um, and the decision of the Council, and the initial decision of Constantine as the Emperor is, okay, Arianism is wrong, and now it's illegal. But, shortly after that, the situation in the Empire completely reversed to, to now it's, the Emperors themselves are Arians, and Arianism is the sponsored religion of the state. Um, Nicene Christianity is oppressed and pushed back, and the emperors are requesting the Nicene bishops to uh, be quiet or take a more tolerant position towards Arianism. Constantine um, was baptized as an Arian. Yeah, he was. Yeah. That's correct. Um, so it's like there's here's this dogmatic approach, you know, having a council, an ecumenical council of all of the bishops of Christianity. Um, and they come to this decision, but it actually doesn't work. What does work is when they kind of give up, <laughs> give up the fight, and just focus on worship. Mm -hmm. Because and, because even though they have different uh, theologies, they're worshiping in the same churches. Right. Because like the church is the temple. Mm -hmm. um, like I've tried to find this in my own study of Western. Christian history is, okay, so like, do we have churches that are built as Aryan churches? Um, do we have like an Aryan, an Aryan cathedral and a Catholic cathedral in the same city? It's like, well, no, you don't because um, the church like isn't a place of teaching. It isn't a place of dogma and doctrine. It's a place of worship. And this is what like composers of the liturgy, um, figure out pretty quickly is okay what people are worshiping is far more important than what you're teaching them mm -hmm. and so you like know, if, that's that's similar like plato actually says that that same thing basically is saying i don't care who makes the laws for a nation i care yeah, who makes, who makes like give music. me the man who makes his its music right and and i'll be able to mold them into the type of people that i want them to be basically yeah uh, the laws aren't going to do it but the music is Okay, well, we're going to need to wrap this up pretty shortly, so 
Um, I mean, I think I've, I've made some of the closing remarks that I wanted to make already. Oh, I said something that had an implication before we got into that uh, subject. <clears throat> um, and I wanted to confirm that the implication <laughs> was what I meant. Oh, <laughs> but okay. I can't remember what it was. Um, oh, let's think back on what we were saying a little bit here. <laughs> um, it's just not coming back to my mind, I guess. Uh, we were talking about... Uh, I don't Modern know. Worship, worship, worship being the self. Oh yeah. Um, worship being the solution to the the rational problem. Yeah, but it was before that. Yeah, I can't um, help that. Yeah, I'm sorry. If you if you listen to this podcast and you go back and find something not too long ago that uh, I said that seems to make an implication, then just know that I yeah. met that implication. <laughs> yeah, if he said anything wrong, then then ignore that. <laughs> interpret it a different way <laughs> okay well um yeah like i said i think I, I sort of touched on what i wanted to um and and again just emphasize this idea that that worship really is a solution to a lot of the problems in the church if you're focused on god then you you are focused on the transcendent and yeah, the ineffable um, you're you're driven to a state of humility um you're you're driven to a state of of awe and reverence and yeah. wonder and the, like the central and most important conclusion of that is uh, you need to be attentive to your worship and don't take the idea of worship lightly and don't compromise on your worship um, like this is something that's deathly serious the end <laughs> thank you for listening if you would like to support this podcast then all that we ask is for you to subscribe, think of a friend who might enjoy it, and share it with them. And please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.